beginning at St. Anne's and continuing to other stations, as they call them, of the cross. This is the pathway that, again, tradition says was followed by Jesus, leading to the place of crucifixion, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. For certain, archaeology enables us to say St. Anne's is authentic, that is, that is the pool of Bethesda. And where we are, actually we're a little beyond it, but where we are is above stones they know to be from the Herodian period on which there was a kind of pavilion and in that place, which was the foundation of the Antonia Fortress, Jesus was condemned and perhaps also scourged. Uh, we are now at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, and the floor I'm speaking of is back and below us. Now, if you brought your scriptures, you might want to turn to Mark and chapter 15. There is an alternative theory that the events I'm about to read about occurred not here in the Antonia Fortress, but in the palace of Herod on the west side of the mount known as Mount Zion. The thought is that perhaps Herod was providing lodging and hospitality to Pontius Pilate, the procurator, and that therefore this scene occurred there rather than here. It could have been either, but let us review it, starting with verse 1 in chapter 15. As soon as morning dawned, the chief priests formed a conference with the elders and scribes, including the entire Sanhedrin, the legal body of Jewish law. And binding Jesus, they led him off and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, so you say. Now in the King James, that's, that's thou sayest. Some think that is an evasive answer, as if to say, you said it, I didn't say it. But in the grammatical framework of the time, to say, thou sayest, has the same meaning as we in our own idiom have when we say to someone who really impresses us with what he said, you said it. That means, really, it is true. And later in the Gospel of Mark, he says it in two words. I am. So there is no question in this Gospel account, Jesus acknowledges he is the King of the Jews. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. But Pilate questioned him again. Have you no answer? See what they are charging against you. Still... Jesus made no further reply so that Pilate wondered but at the feast we're in the time of the feast of Passover he used to that is he was accustomed to release to them one prisoner for whom they asked and there was one named Barabbas confined with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising the shouting mob proceeded to request the usual privilege for them Pilate replied to them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
Remember, Pilate later puts on the crossbeam of the cross, Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Jews come and say, don't say the King of the Jews, say he said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. There is considerable evidence in the Gospels that Pilate was of a double mind. And that was intensified, that ambivalence by his wife who said, leave this man alone. I have had dreams. Do not have to do with him. And that when he finally goes with the crowd, he washes his hands, wanting to symbolize it is your responsibility for doing this, not mine. But Elder Neil Maxwell has observed correctly that in that attempt to evade, Pilate's hands were never dirtier. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? For he knew that out of envy the chief priests had delivered him. However, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to prefer that Barabbas be released. Then Pilate came back at them again. Then what shall I do with the one you call king of the Jews? But again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why? What wrong did he commit? But they cried out more loudly, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, gave him over to be crucified. In the other accounts, there is another incident. You saw an arch uh, as you walked along very near this place, coming over the road. It's known as the Ecce Homo arch, meaning in Latin, Behold the Man. I believe that Pilate wanted to placate the enemies of Jesus and believed that if he sufficiently scourged him, that would suffice. And they would say, all right, now he's, he's had his punishment. He'll behave from now on and release him. They did not. When he said, behold the man, they saw a man who had been scourged. We will be in a place of scourging. They stretch a man with leather thongs into holes in stone above. They stretch his legs with leather thongs around two poles. There is a central pillar against which his body is stretched. And then the man with the scourge, on this side if he's right-handed, on this if left. Not a whip, not one thong, but several strands of leather, and every half inch or so a piece of metal or glass. And then full force on his neck and back. Even one such flaying leaves stripes. In that same place, you will see two small cisterns in the stone. And when people have asked me, what are they for? I have to answer honestly, a Roman cruelty. They are for vinegar and for salt. We read in Isaiah 53, he was bruised 
for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The proper translation, the cost of bringing us peace was paid by him. And with his stripes, we are healed. I pray that you will remember those verses the rest of your lives. So Pilate says, Behold the man, and their beholding did not bring mercy, but only the desire that he continue until he was crucified. This is also the place for me to say in comparative quiet a few things about crucifixion. Many years ago, about 25, at the very foot of Mount Scopus, a tomb was opened and they found the skeleton of a man. They can date it. It goes back to the first century. Even the name is in an inscription, Yonatan. He had been crucified. How do they know that? Because apparently when they drove the spike through his heels together into the wood, they struck a knot. And later, when they wanted to bury him or entomb him, it was easier to simply cut off a piece of the wood and leave it connected to him than it was to pull it out. So there he was, evidence of crucifixion. And about that process, they learned three things. One, he wasn't just nailed through the hands, but through the wrists. Secondly, they didn't, as so much religious art portrays, stretch his body on the cross. Yes, in the upper area, but some slack left both in the arms and in the legs, and the body is turned slightly and the legs bent. That is even more cruel than to stretch him, because what it means is that the person who feels the horrible pain of the hands or wrists then takes more of the weight onto his feet and then vice versa and slowly writhes himself to death. Which helps perhaps understand that Jesus could have died within three or four hours from his placement on the cross, which is what the record suggests. And he is then, that night, entombed. Whereas some people, believe it or not, could exist at least in some sense of alive on the cross for days, two or three days. The other thing they learned from that clue is that sometimes people on the cross suffocated because as their energy was spent in the writhing and in the loss of blood, they could no longer hold up their head and therefore could no longer breathe and suffocate. Jesus said when they announced that he would die, that they did not have power to take his life, that he would give it voluntarily. But there were, no doubt, 
physical causes as well as spiritual and volitional. And we know just from the brief account in Luke, but in addition, section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that through that long night, he did not just bleed a little, but bled at every pore. And then scourging, he was not a gladiator, and yet he was asked to behave as one. Some think that he had to walk this thin street with the beam bound to his upper arms and might even have had to go up the grades and the stairs sideways. The record tells us that at least once he fell. And that's when Simon the Cyrene was asked to help him. Those of you who have seen the story all legendary of Ben-Hur may remember the scene in the desert when Ben-Hur comes in absolutely parched and his lips swollen and water is given to the other prisoners but his is kicked away and he cries out oh God and then you see from behind, never the face, a person come with a sizable gourd filled with water and you can almost feel the compassion as he lifts his head and gives him the gourd. He drinks and looks up in almost infinite gratitude. And then later in Ben-Hur's life, he sees Jesus carrying his cross, sees him fall, and rushes to bring water to him. And someone kicks it away, and it spreads out over the stones. They did not give him water on the cross. They gave him, when he cried out, I thirst, a sponge filled with hyssop and vinegar, bitter. Some think that was an act of mercy to make his struggle less painful. Perhaps my own intuition is it was a gesture of further contempt. In your face. We as Latter-day Saints have never put a cross on a spire of our chapel or even on our temples. And it is not the formative symbol amidst the altar or in the front of any of our chapels or meeting houses. But brothers and sisters, we cannot ignore that in the heart of our religion, in our own book, the Book of Mormon as well as the Bible, the cross does figure. As a matter of fact, nothing in the Old Testament can specifically be designated a prophecy of crucifixion, but there are three of them in the sources in the Book of Mormon. He will be crucified. And we are taught therein that the meaning for us is to be willing to deny ourselves of all ungodliness. That, in the fulfillment of his mission, Christ himself did.